It's my pleasure today to introduce Dr. Ken Michelle. Uh, Ken is from Toronto, from Scarborough to be precise, where he lives with his wife Nicole, who's here with him today. He serves as worship pastor at Bridalwood Presbyterian Church and is on fa faculty at Tyndale University, where he teaches theology of worship and music. And so it seemed to make sense, uh, since Ken's preaching today, to step aside from our summer series in the parables and have him uh, preach on the topic of worship. Uh, so he'll be doing that today. Ken's also an avid Blue Jays fan, and I think it's a little sad, but the Leafs come second in his heart to the Jays. Well, he's, he's given me this, so, um, but I know there will be some Leaf-related discussion later in the day. I'm counting on that, Ken. Um, Ken is also my brother-in-law, so it's, it's a particular pleasure for me and Judith to welcome her brother to the pulpit of Courtright. So Ken, rather I said you'd come up here and i pray for you, maybe just in the interest of distance, I'll pray for you from here now. So let's, let's pray as we prepare to read scripture. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you cut through all the noise in our lives and speak with your still small voice when we're prepared to listen. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open our ears in that way today, that, that you, everyone here is coming from different circumstances, but you have a word of encouragement for each of us. And I pray that, that we would hear that, whether it's a word of challenge, a word of correction, or a word of comfort, uh, would we uh, make ourselves available and lean in to the reading and preaching of your word today. And we pray for Ken. Um, I pray that you would bless him in his work at Tyndale and at Bridalwood. I pray that you would give him words to speak even now uh, as he comes up to share your word with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. For your warm welcome. It is indeed a privilege for Nicole and I to, uh, to actually be in a room with other people. Uh, that's, uh, so I've been teaching, I've been online entirely for the last 16 months. In fact, this is one of the few times I'm, I'm wearing pants. So um, <laughs> it's kind of a novelty too. I'm, I'm the cliche, uh, yeah. Grateful to be with you and as well to be connected through technology. Everything uh, we've been doing, I've been doing in particular over the last 16 months has been through the gift of technology. And technology is awesome until it isn't. Um, we're grateful too to be reminded that gathered in community, gathered in worship together is indeed a privilege and a gift. And thank you, uh, worship team, for leading us. Uh, again, for us, our, our small church, Scarborough, is where we are and we've been online, so just being in the same space with other uh, believers singing and praising God together is a real gift, so thank you. Um, I'd like to begin, actually, with uh, a question, uh, a word association question, um, and I'm going to ask you, so I'm going to give you six words, and I simply want you to choose which word you most closely associate with love. Then I'll get you to kind of raise your hands as we go through it, but I'll give you the six words first. So as I say these words, just think in your head, which one do you most closely, and choose one, so which one do you most closely associate with love? The words are patience, faithfulness, justice, hope, righteousness, and 
trust. Maybe not the words you were expecting. Okay, so I'll read them again, and this time, feel free to just raise your hand as I say them. Which one you most closely associate with love? Here they are. Patience. Faithfulness. Justice. Hope. Righteousness. And trust. All right, so trust is the winner. <laughs> trust and faithfulness tend to be the closest two. And for those online, I'm just going to assume this is sort of a representative sample of the Courtright community, so we're good. As we turn to our scripture reading, and I'll read uh, from Psalm 89 in just a moment, I know I'm taking us uh, in a bit of a different direction than your summer teaching series uh, in the parables. Um, and thank you for that. Uh, that's a gift to me. The parables are, of course, Jesus' words. Um, they're his stories, and, and they teach us, particularly around God's ways, the ways of God's kingdom, the ways of God's grace, the ways as well of God's judgment. And what I'd like to do is take us a little further back into the words that shaped Jesus' words to the book of the Psalms. The Psalms are right at the heart of the Old Testament. They are God's words, so we receive them as God speaks to us. But they are also uniquely structured in a way that they are words that we put on our lips, particularly in the context of worship. And so we say them and we sing them and we pray them as God listens to us. In that sense, the Psalms both speak to us and speak for us. Now, Psalm 89 is a kind of summary psalm. It is the last chapter of the third book in the Psalms. You may recall the Psalms have 150 chapters, but they're divided up into five books, five. Much like the books of the law from Genesis to Deuteronomy also are divided up into five, so we have this symmetry moving forward. And Psalm 89 then concludes book three. And the first 18 verses, which is what we'll read together, they remind us of the great theme of Christian worship, which is God's great love and faithfulness. And this is true in heaven as it is on earth. And right in the middle of this section, the psalmist sort of sneaks in this verse, drawing our attention to a connection between love and justice. And more accurately, the pairing of love and faithfulness with the pairing of love and or justice and righteousness. So for any of you who did choose justice or righteousness as one of the words you closely associate with love, you're in good company. Both of you. Let's read from Psalm 89, verses 1 through 18. I'll read from the New International Version. I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth, I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever, that you have established your faithfulness in heaven itself. You said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. The heavens praise your wonders, Lord, your faithfulness too in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can compare with the Lord? 
Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. Who is like you, Lord God Almighty? You, Lord, are mighty, and your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. You crushed Rahab like one of the slain. Quick aside, Rahab isn't a person. Rahab symbolizes a great sea creature. So as great as the sea creature is, we're saying that God is greater. With your strong arm, you scattered your enemies. The heavens are yours and yours also the earth. You founded the world and all that is in it. You created the north and the south, Tabor and Hermon, which are great mountains. Sing for joy at your name. Your arm is endowed with power. Your hand is strong. Your right hand exalted. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, who walk in the light of your presence, Lord. They rejoice in your name all day long. They celebrate your righteousness. For you are their glory and strength, and by your favor you exalt our horn. Indeed, our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray with the psalmist that you would show us your ways, that you would teach us your paths, that you would guide us in your truth and teach us for you, our God, our Savior, and our hope is in you all day long. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I did an internet search on the themes of love and justice and started by searching songs about love, of which there are many. And the first page of the search included links to a top 50 best love songs, a top 51 best love songs, 57 best love songs, and then a couple of top 100 best love songs. There are a lot of good options to choose from. But when I did a similar search on songs about justice, I only got one link to a top 10. Clearly, love is a more popular theme for songwriters. And now because Psalm 89 is positioned in the context of worship, it raises the question, if we look at songs of the church, would we find a better balance? So I went to the CCLI website, and CCLI is the organization that provides licenses for church and church communities to use songs in their worship services that are under copyright anything typically within the last 75 to 100 years, which includes, of course, most of the contemporary worship material that we sing. On their site, you can search by theme, and they have 13,739 songs with love as the theme. In fact, in their rankings by theme, love is the second highest. The only one that tops it is the theme of praise. Now, can you guess how many songs are listed with the theme of justice? So I'll give you a number. You can tell me if, it's, if you think it's higher or lower. Start with, let's go less than half. So let's say 5,000. Are there 5,000 songs with the theme of love? Higher or lower? Yeah, a lot of shaking heads. We'll go lower. Let's go to 2,500. I feel like I'm at an auction. We're going lower? This is like a reverse auction, I think. Uh, let's go to 1,000. Are there? Well, maybe, possibly. I'm still going lower. 500? 
Any takers? We're getting close. 300? Sold. Well, there are, in fact, 295. Not a lot. And if we add the number of justice-themed songs with the number of love-themed songs, justice does not get the love. Songs with the theme of justice represent only 2% of the combined total. And CCLI represents, again, contemporary material, but maybe the more traditional material, hymns, will fare better. So I did the same search on hymnary.org, which, as the name implies, is a database for hymns. And I got similar results. Of the hymn texts that refer to love or justice, only 4% referred to justice. Now, in fairness, these numbers don't tell the whole story. Songs don't account for everything that happens in our worship services. But to the extent that our songs represent or reflect the content of worship, I think we can acknowledge a pretty big difference between the focus of worship that celebrates God's love compared to the emphasis on God's justice. And if that is the case in the church, then when we read Psalm 89, we are much more likely to gravitate to those opening verses where we sing of the Lord's great love forever and much less likely to even notice verse 14 where love and faithfulness find their roots in God's righteousness and justice. And to whatever extent the songs that we sing are a reflection of what we believe, we seem to have a robust theology of God's love but an impoverished theology of God's justice. And I may as well add here, since I think this is where these verses take us, if we have an impoverished theology of God's justice, we have an impoverished theology of God's love. And if that is the case in the church, then when the conversation in society turns toward issues of justice, which it has increasingly in recent years, the church might be stuck for words. We might not know what to say or sing or pray because we haven't practiced the repertoire. Now, one of the great gifts of the Psalms is they indeed address all the areas of life. Athanasius, one of the early church fathers, said about the Psalms, it is my view that in the words of this book, the whole of human life, its basic spiritual conduct, as well as its, as its occasional movements and thoughts, is comprehended and contained. Nothing to be found in human life is omitted. And so we take the Psalms on our lips and we taste them, we chew them, we digest them. And our speech, our song, our prayer becomes infused by and flavored with God's word. We practice the repertoire. And when it comes time for the performance, we're ready. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. I want to make three observations from our passage this morning. The first is that God's love is connected to God's justice. The second is that God's love comes from God's throne. And if not, neither of those observations make a lot of sense, point three will be the redeeming factor. God's love is revealed in Jesus. First observation is simply that God's love is connected to God's justice. We already read from the NIV translation of Psalm 89, but let me read from the message translation of just 
verse 14. It says, the right and justice are the roots of your rule. Love and truth are its fruits. And while the NIV translation reminds us that God's love and faithfulness are built upon the firm foundation of righteousness and justice, the message translation points to a more pastoral scene, roots and fruits. When you look at a tree, you can see the trunk, the leaves, the branches. And at the right time of year, we can see the fruit that it produces. What you can't see usually, however, are the roots that support and sustain the tree's growth. Roots, of course, play a critical role in the quality of the fruit. As one writer puts it, the deeper the roots, the greater the fruits. And it may seem somewhat ironic that someone like me, who is a total city person, is offering any kind of agricultural observation but while I readily confess to being very limited in my knowledge of trees and roots and soil, yes, my family is laughing, uh, I do know a thing about fruit, at least to the extent that I like to eat. And so I can at least attest to the quality of what good root systems produce. And I can see the connection between the roots and the fruit. And this verse tells us that God's love and faithfulness are rooted in God's righteousness and justice. God's love is connected to God's justice. So what do we know about the roots of righteousness and justice? Well, righteousness refers to a right position or a right standing. Someone who is righteous is in right standing, and that means there is a standard which they are upholding and adhering to. When we speak of righteousness in the scriptures, we're talking about being in right standing or right relationship with God or upholding God's standard. That means we're following God's design for our lives, doing what pleases Him and serving Him in the way that He has called us. We are loving God and loving what God loves. And maybe it helps to understand what it means, what this means by looking at the opposite idea, unrighteousness. Let's see what's going on in the upside down. In the Bible, the term for unrighteousness is associated with a dishonest standard being applied to things like measurements or weights or quantities. If you come to the marketplace to buy 10 pounds of bricks, there would be a balance with scale on two sides or scales on both sides. And on one side, you would have a counterweight that would be equal to 10 pounds, and that's your standard. And then on the other side, you would have where you load your bricks, and of course, when they equal, you know you have 10 pounds of bricks. In Leviticus chapter 9, God instructs his people, saying, do not use dishonest standards when measuring length or weight or quantity. And the term here for dishonest is the same one that is translated as unrighteous or even unjust. And then on the other hand, God affirms the actions of the righteous person saying, you shall maintain honest scales and weights, an honest ephah and an honest hin. Now, an ephah is a tool for measuring grain, and a hin is a tool for measuring liquid. So we have this picture that righteousness is connecting us to the right measurement, the honest standard, God's standard. And if righteousness reflects the right measurement or honest standard, then justice reflects the movement toward righteousness bringing that measurement back to the honest standard. 
Isaiah 51 says that God's justice will become a light to the nations, presumably a light that guides them along the path back to righteousness. And in Micah 6, we're reminded of God's instruction and requirement of us to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly before or with your God. Justice brings us back to the path where we walk with God in right relationship with Him. And if justice is the movement that brings us back to the right place with God, what might be the movement that reaches out to us when we're not in the right place? Love. When God moves toward us, when He reaches out to us and meets us in our brokenness, this is the action of God's love. And when He doesn't just leave us in our brokenness, but by His Spirit moves us toward obedience and faithfulness to Him, this is the action of God's justice. N.T. Wright says that because of God's great love, we can come as we are. But because of God's great love, we're not just left as we are. God's love comes from His righteousness, the, right, the standard of right relationship that already exists within the Godhead. The Father who loves the Son, the Son who loves the Spirit, the Spirit who loves the Father and so on. God is love. His very nature is self-giving, loving community, right relationship. And when He reaches out to us, He meets us where we are, and we know His comfort. But He doesn't leave us there. He lifts us up. He restores. He heals. He redeems. He delivers. He saves. So that we can move, usually toward a work that He has prepared for us to do. In that sense, God's love extends from His righteousness, right relationship, right standing, and God's justice draws us toward His righteousness. And if we recognize that right relationship with God moves God toward us and moves us toward God, it helps us understand justice as redemptive action rather than primarily a punitive one. I want to be careful not to be overly reductionistic or get too lost on semantics, like love can only be seen as that outreach kind of movement, and justice is only this movement that brings us back. There's tons of overlap. Love and justice are interconnected, and I think that connection helps us see that we don't really have one without the other. Yes, we celebrate God's love as He meets us where we are, and yes, we proclaim God's standard for our lives, and we go where God leads us. When I asked the question about which word you associate with love, I, I think we landed where we landed because we generally connect love with a heart response. And when we talk about God's love, I think we come with a similar expectation that God's love comes from God's heart. In the Scriptures, we learn that God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that God quiets us by His love, that by God's love we are called His children, that we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. This is love language that the Scriptures affirm about God's disposition toward us. And Psalm 89 verse 14 invites us to explore a second observation and that is that God's love comes from God's throne. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. 
The mention of the throne has, of course, kingdom implications. Kingdoms have kings, and that means we are submitted to the king as subjects in his kingdom. And remaining true to God's ways is where his love and faithfulness come from. God's love and faithfulness extend from his righteous and just rule. If we are to love in the way that God loves, we need to be submitted to God's way rather than our own. That's one of the reasons why confession is an important part of our worship service. We say yes to God and we say no to what is not of God. And we hear a big yes from God when we are reminded that we are restored and forgiven. This is good news. Being forgiven and being forgiving is the way of God's kingdom. And we pray for God's kingdom to come and for His will to be done. His kingdom rule and reign is founded on righteousness and justice, where the love of God flows from the throne of God. Let's take what we're talking about and apply it to ourselves. Think of your own lives. Think of the people who love you and the people who you love. Take your family, for instance. Most of us grow up with expectations for or from our families, most likely both. Hopefully those expectations or standards are in place to bring, the, bring out the best in all of us or in all of you. And our loving behavior then flows out of those expectations and standards and is also aimed to keep us in line with those expectations and standards. That's the movement of love and justice at work. We might even think it's a justice issue when someone's behavior is outside of that standard and we take steps, hopefully loving steps, to remedy the situation. We may even use the term tough love when we feel compelled to take action that, while difficult, will hopefully bring that person back to center. When I grew up, when I did something wrong, notice I said when and not if, I was disciplined. This was an act of love from my parents, extending from the standard or the rightness that they believed was for the flourishing of our family. The Bible says the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and that discipline comes from the root of justice that seeks to bring us back to the right standard and into right relationship. God's love comes from the throne of God. And again, we can draw a parallel to our experience. The love of, insert your name here, flows from the throne of, insert your name here, Whatever or whoever is seated on the throne of your life will dictate what you stand for, what you reach for, and what you fight for. And if we want to love like Jesus, he needs to be on the throne of our lives. Maybe it's helpful to think of a different metaphor. When we're not in the middle of a pandemic, and you would normally give someone a hug, you reach out with your arms to embrace them. And although I may be stating the obvious, your arms tend to be attached to your body. Verse 14 tells us that God's love and faithfulness are like the arms that extend to embrace us. For the full hug experience, arms and body are connected. Similarly, we don't disconnect God's love and faithfulness from His righteousness and justice. We can't claim to be faithful, loving Christians if we abandon God's standard for righteousness and justice. Neither can we trumpet justice while we trample love. 
The love of God comes from the throne of God. And the kingdom of God reminds us that we're not the center of the universe. We're part of a bigger story. And biblical justice doesn't begin with putting ourselves first. It focuses on the needs of others, particularly the needs of the vulnerable and the oppressed. The way of God's kingdom and his justice pursues dignity for what Nicholas Walterstorff calls the quartet of the vulnerable. Widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. When that becomes the root of the tree that produces the fruit of love, it is indeed life-giving. That is when love is self-giving and self-sacrificing, preferring the needs of others before our own. None of that is to say that we don't experience benefits in loving relationship that meets our needs and improve our lives, but that isn't the source of our love and faithfulness. We seek God's kingdom first, as we sang together, and His righteousness, dressed in His righteousness alone. And not only will these things be added to us, but the overflow of our love will more closely resemble God's love. When we pray that we would show God's love for others, we can pray that we will know God's righteousness and justice for others. I think it's also helpful here to acknowledge the psalmist's emphasis on the foundation of God's throne. Foundations are fixed in place. They are not moving targets. In the ancient Near Eastern culture, people believed that gods were fickle, that they could bless you just as quickly as they could mess you up. And ritual actions were aimed at pleasing the gods so they'd have a little less mess and a little more bless. But God declares that his love and faithfulness are not based on his emotional center, thankfully. They are based on the immovable certainty of his good standard right relationship for us. This is why we have hope and not just wishful thinking. We have certainty of God's love for now and always. God's love is connected to his justice. God reaches out to us and draws us near to him. God's love comes from his throne. He doesn't only love us when he feels like it. His love builds up from the firm foundation of his sovereign rule and reign. And if we're still trying to work this out, we need look no further than Jesus and our third observation. God's love is revealed in Jesus, who perfectly fulfills the righteousness and justice of God. When Jesus is baptized, he declares, let it be so now, it is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus announces that his life given for us will meet God's standard, the way of God's kingdom, and in so doing, make the way for us to come to the Father, to be saved, to be reconciled. 1 John 4 tells us this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God reaches out to us in love, sending his one and only son. And Jesus died on the cross to atone, to pay the penalty for the sins of the world, to fulfill the standard of God's righteousness. And through his resurrection, breaking the power of sin and death, he restored the broken relationship between God 
and his creation. Through the cross, God made a way for us to return to him because his justice has been satisfied. So God's love is revealed in Jesus who comes to us. And God's justice is satisfied in Jesus who makes a way for us to come to God. And John goes on to explain that we are then given the Holy Spirit who lives in us and that our acknowledgement, our declaration, our proclamation of Jesus as Lord and Jesus as the Son of God is the proof of God's life in us. In other words, when Jesus sits on the throne of our lives and we declare his lordship, God's love lives in us. The foundation of God's love is his righteousness and justice, and the fulfillment of God's love is his righteousness and justice. We've come full circle. God's love for you and for me is shown in the gift of Jesus, who has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. We proclaim the good news of our forgiveness and our restoration to right standing and right relationship with God because of Jesus. And finally, while we recognize that the foundation of God's justice and righteousness are fixed, His love and faithfulness are moving. They go before us. They reach out. They are the arms that extend to embrace us. They proceed into the places and to the people where there is need, where there is loneliness, where there is oppression and vulnerability. And this is our challenge as God's church. We are called to love. And that means we will need to go and be the hands and feet of Jesus, reaching out to bring comfort and healing. And we are called to justice, which means we, when we go, we are ministers of reconciliation who encourage a movement back toward God's standard, all while pursuing righteousness in the church and in our world. It won't do to call people to a standard that we aren't faithful to. And so we look at ourselves first and we ask some hard questions. Where does our love come from? What standard or expectation do I reach out from? Is it self-giving or is it self-serving. And because love and justice are so closely connected, a great place to double-check where your love comes from is to ask yourself, what makes you angry? Because what inspires your indignation and your sense of injustice will point directly back to the foundation of your love. And I'm pretty sure if you're like me, you'll have some work to do to connect love and justice that come from and return to God's righteousness and not our own version. Psalm 89 affirms that God's great love is the theme of worship, and we have the repertoire to back that up. But Psalm 89 also reminds us that God's love is connected to God's justice, and we may still need to develop some of that repertoire. May our love for God for each other, for all of God's creation, proceed from the foundation of God's righteousness and justice. And may we seek first God's kingdom and the way of his kingdom. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together.
Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we have received your love and faithfulness. You have reached out to us. Through Jesus, we have been reconciled to you, and you see us as righteous. And that has nothing to do with what we have accomplished or done and everything to do with what you have done through Jesus. Teach us about your righteousness and justice that we may be loving and faithful so that we can reach out, so that we can embrace, give good hugs to a world that is in need. For we pray in the name of Jesus, who is seated on the throne of our lives. Amen.